Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, Joshua chapter 24. Well, the last time we got together, we read and studied Joshua chapter 23. This was Joshua's farewell address to Israel. Now, he was nearing 110 years of age. He knew his time was near. And in the motif of all the great leaders, he realized that his legacy had to be told and that the people reminded of how they as a people of God had arrived at their present glorious circumstances. Now, Joshua's message to them was quite basic. He will die and leadership is going to change hands. But God never changes. And the blessings that Jehovah promised to Israel are certain for them. But so are the curses for disobedience. Now sometimes that punishment for disobedience was that the blessings would cease rather than bad things happening to them per se. They were to be especially on guard, they were told, against mixing with their pagan neighbors. Understand, all their neighbors were pagan. The Canaanites still living in the promised land were a danger to them, as were the other nations living on or just beyond their borders. The primary danger was that Israel might slide into idolatry and the death penalty was essentially the consequence of such folly. Now, the death that they would experience on a national basis as a national judgment if they did this would be the loss of their land, the loss of their rest, and the loss of many of their lives. Now, what we're about to read in chapter 24 takes place at an undetermined time after this farewell address of chapter 23. It's a wholly separate event. Okay. This, this chapter 24 is called one of the theologically richest in the entire Old Testament. Some scholars have spent many years of their careers simply investigating this single chapter. Okay. And, and as we're at the end of our study of the book of Joshua, and now I think we have sufficient background uh, with our study of the Torah, we're going to delve quite deeply into this chapter um, and take our time as we examine some of the hidden gems that are contained in these paragraphs. I think the time we'll spend will be well worth it as a lot of connections are going to be made for you. And because some review of Israel's history is contained in this account, I think it will be healthy for us to see a bigger and more complete picture emerge. So in some ways, we're going to kind of summarize what we've learned over the long haul. Okay, now, recall that at the beginning of Joshua, I told you that until Joshua took over and brought the people of Israel into the promised land, that the law as given to Moses at Mount Sinai was but lofty ideals. Much of it actually had no effect until they entered Canaan and possessed it. Much of it couldn't even be practiced until the land was won. 
So as we moved out of Torah and then into the book of Joshua, we also moved from theory to practice. It, it, it is so much like the walk of a new believer. We learn that there is a new and divine way to follow. And then next we're taught some principles to lead our way. But pretty soon we find out that doing is much harder than merely knowing God's will. Let's move on to chapter 24. Open your Bibles, please. To Joshua chapter 24, 267. Page 267 if you're in the complete Jewish Bible. Yahshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. He summoned the leaders, heads, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Yeshua said to all the people, This is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. In antiquity, your ancestors lived on the other side of the Euphrates River. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. I took your ancestor Abraham from beyond the river. I led him all through the land of Canaan, increased his descendants, and gave him Yitzhak, Isaac. I gave to Yitzhak, Yaakov, Jacob, and Esau. To Esau I gave Mount Seir as his possession, but Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron. I inflicted plagues on Egypt in accordance with what I did among them, and afterwards I brought you out. Yes, I brought your fathers out of Egypt. You arrived at the sea, and the Egyptians were pursuing your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Sea of Suf. But when they cried out to Adonai, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, overwhelmed them with the sea, and drowned them. Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you into the land of the Amorites, living beyond the Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You took possession of their land, and I destroyed them ahead of you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose up and fought against Israel. He sent and summoned Bilam, the son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I refused to listen to Bilam, and he actually blessed you. And this way I rescued you from him. Next you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The men of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites, the Prezi, the Canaani, the Hitti, Girgashi, Hevi, and Yavusi. I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you, driving them out from ahead of you, the two kings of the Amorites. It wasn't by your sword or your bow. Then I gave you a land where you had not worked and cities you had not built, and you lived there. You eat fruit from vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Therefore, fear Adonai and serve him truly and sincerely. Put away the gods your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Adonai. Now, if it seems bad to you to serve Adonai, then choose today whom you're going to serve. Will it be the gods your ancestors served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living? As for me and my household, we will serve Adonai. 
The people answered, Far be it from us that we would abandon Adonai to serve other gods, because it is Adonai our God who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from a life of slavery and did those great signs before our eyes and preserved us all along the way we traveled and among the peoples we passed through. And it was Adonai who drove out from ahead of us all the peoples, the Amorites living in the land. Therefore, we too will serve Adonai, for he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you can't serve Adonai because he's holy. He's a holy God, a jealous God. He'll not forgive your crimes and sins. If you abandon Adonai and serve foreign gods, he will turn, doing you harm and destroying you after he's done you good. But the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve Adonai. Joshua said to the people, then you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Adonai to serve him. They answered, we are witnesses. Now, Joshua urged, put away the foreign gods you have among you. Turn your hearts to Adonai, the God of Israel. The people answered Joshua, we will serve Adonai our God. We will pay attention to what he says. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, laying down for them laws and rulings there in Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of Torah of God. Then he took a big stone and he set it up there under the oak tree next to the sanctuary of Adonai. Yahshua said to all the people, See, this stone will be a witness against us because he has heard all the words of Adonai which he said to us. Therefore, it will be a witness against you in case you deny your God. Then Yahshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After this, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Adonai, died. He was 110 years old. They buried him on his property in Timnat Sirach, which is in the hills of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Israel served Adonai throughout Yahshua's lifetime and throughout the lifetimes of the leaders who outlived Yahshua and had known all the deeds that Adonai had done on behalf of Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried in Shechem, and the parcel of ground which Yaakov had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem for a hundred pieces of silver, and they became a possession for the descendants of Yosef. Finally, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him on the hill belonging to Pinchas, his son, which had been given to him in the hills of Ephraim. In chapter 24, Joshua now gathers Israel together for a purpose that's a little bit different than that farewell address of chapter 23. Now, this meeting is in the form of making a covenant, according to some. But to my way of thinking, this is more about making a covenant renewal than it is about the creation of a new covenant or announcing the next in a series of covenants. We won't ever hear about a covenant of Joshua for this very reason. Now, Israel was quite spread out by this time and was by no means a sovereign nation. It was a loose confederation of 12 tribes plus Levi under what was essentially 
centralized military rule for a common military purpose, subduing Canaan. With the imminent death of Joshua, this loose confederation of tribes was about to become a whole lot looser. Now, since, every Isra- since Israel was so spread out, there was practically no way that all the citizens of Israel, every man, woman, and child, could come to one place to meet and hear what Joshua had to say. So, as usual, it was primarily the leaders uh, of Israel who attended. Now, often these meetings, when we're told that all Israel was present, were of either the tribal princes or the tribal elders. Sometimes it was both. This time, it was not only the princes and elders that were present, but also the judges and the officers were told. The idea is that every sort of leader representing every phase of the Israelite community was there. And I'm sure we're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of men. Now, I'm I'm not going to depth in describing what each of these leadership positions entailed because we've examined them before. But we do need to recall that these were not a bunch of different names or terms for essentially the same job. Princes or chiefs were the genetic descendants of the tribe's founders. They were members of that tribe who belonged to a particular bloodline that, coupled with their birthright, automatically entitled them to be the leader of their tribe. Elders, on the other hand, were men chosen for their wisdom or courage or or some demonstrated leadership abilities. The elders were the common man's representatives among Israel. Now, the term officers in this particular case, likely meant military officers. Although we shouldn't draw a perfect parallel between them and an officer and a modern army who often is not as a career man. Israel did not have a standing army. It was simply that all men between ages of 20 and 50 were obligated to fight when they were called upon. The officers were men who displayed outstanding fighting ability or, or loyalty to Joshua. Or they had great leadership skills and thus they were appointed to be military leaders whenever Israel was going into battle. Otherwise, after a battle, these officers went back to doing whatever their trade or profession called for and to just being husbands and fathers and family providers. Now, the judges spoken of are a different matter. And it's not at all clear what their precise function was during the time that Joshua was still living and ruling. The, the, the Hebrew word for judge is shofet. And of course, the word lends its name as the title of the book that follows Joshua in our Bibles. Now, when we begin the book of Judges in just a couple of weeks, we'll get more in-depth analysis on just what constituted an Israelite being a judge and and what that title entailed. But as for what a judge, a a shofet, meant just prior to Joshua's death, it's a little bit hazy. Generally speaking, it is likely that these men continued to help Joshua rule very probably hearing complaints and resolving issues from anywhere from minor to very common 
uh, matters among the people. And we probably have as good a definition as we're likely going to get for what a judge did in that era in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25.1 says this, If people have a dispute, seek its resolution in court, and the judges render a decision in favor of the righteous one and condemn the wicked one. Then if the wicked one deserves to be flogged, the judge is to have him lie down and be flogged in his presence. The number of strokes is to be proportionate to his offense. So without doubt, though, the position of judge was now in a transition phase. And they functioned a little bit differently than in Moses' day. Okay. Very likely during the years leading up to Joshua's death, after the land had been conquered and the territories allotted, their function evolved so that it was probably more extensive than what we read in Deuteronomy 25. In fact, a few short years after this covenant renewal ceremony of Joshua 24, the meaning of the term and the purpose of of the judges, the Shofitim, became radically different and had absolutely nothing to do anymore with settling disputes or even trying legal cases. Now, verse 1 tells us that these representatives of Israel met at a place that in some ways kind of surprises us, Shechem. But in other ways... It was perhaps the most appropriate of locations for this ceremony. Shechem was a place of tremendous religious and historical significance for Israel. It was there at Shechem that the Lord promised Abraham this would be the land that would eventually be possessed by his descendants. It was there that the great promises that everyone who counts themselves as believers in the God of Israel, and including those who trust in the Messiah, Yeshua, hold so dear, because it's the beginning of the physical process of a spiritual redemption for mankind that would eventually produce the Messiah. When Israel first crossed that Jordan River, they gathered at Shechem, that is in an area that lay between two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. And it was there that the blessings and curses of the law were pronounced and monuments were erected to memorialize Israel's triumphal entry into the promised land. It was at Shechem that Jacob purchased some land from the king of Shechem and there that he had hoped to settle down and tell his sons went on that raid of revenge for the rape of Israel's daughter Dinah by the king's son. But on the other hand, it was at Shiloh that the current place of rest for the wilderness tabernacle that was the current place of rest rather for the wilderness tabernacle and it was also the seat of government for Israel at that time. The priesthood was centered in Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant, and therefore the presence of God, was at Shiloh. What would have been a better place of covenant renewal before the Lord than at Shiloh? There's been a lot of thought and scholarship on this matter of the ceremony's location. It can probably be best summed up this way. By meeting at Shechem instead of at Shiloh, 
it was made clear that the covenant between Israel and God was more than just a religious matter for the priests to administrate. It was inseparable from the secular life of the community. The covenant of Moses was not to be practiced only during the sacred appointed times. Biblical feasts, Sabbaths, new moons, ritual purifications, sacrifices, all under the supervision and auspices of the Levites. It was instead to be the basis for the everyday life of the people. Now, at the same time, an era was coming to a close. What had begun at Shechem perhaps 600 to 700 years earlier at a simple stone altar next to a terebinth tree at a site that held no city at that time and likely not even a village yet, it came full circle. His promise of a land had been kept by the Lord. With Joshua as the leader, Israel was now firmly entrenched in the promised land. Territories allotted to the twelve tribes. The enemy subdued. A semi-permanent location for the sanctuary had been established. And God's people were at rest. In fact, this was really like no other time in Israel's history. Their obedience and dedication to the Lord was at its peak. And so were their blessings. As a result, now sadly, this state of affairs would be very short lived. Verse 2 begins with Joshua saying to the representatives of all Israel, Thus says Yehovah the Elohim of Israel. Now, this statement invoking God's name also brings us full circle, and it brings this present era to a close because. Whereas the covenant of Abraham was made with El Shaddai, this covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem that both honors the completion of the Abrahamic covenant promise of a land for Abraham's countless descendants, as well as reaffirming the Mosaic covenant, this covenant renewal was made in the name of Yehovah. Now, let's talk about that for a few minutes. The first four verses of chapter 24 deals with the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the book of Exodus, we find this very simple but important statement. Exodus 6.3 I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, although I did not make myself known to them by my name. Now, that's not a throwaway or an incidental pronouncement of God. It explains something, when properly understood, that's going to help us greatly in our correct interpretation of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew of God as only El Shaddai. El Shaddai has for centuries been translated as God Almighty, and that's incorrect. Shaddai is an obsolete Hebrew word that's taken from an Akkadian word, and it means mountain. So the meaning is God of the mountain. 
Okay. Here's the thing. El, E-L, is a Canaanite word, not a Hebrew word. The Hebrews merely incorporated into their language is what they call a loan word. Okay. El was the common name for the Canaanites' highest god. El was the actual name of the head of the Canaanite pantheon of gods who was the father of both all the other gods in the pantheon and of all human beings. But being the father did not mean that El was necessarily the most powerful of the gods. In fact, it was the Canaanite god Baal that was considered the mightiest of all the gods even though El was his father. In Abraham's day, while there was some minor variation in the gods' names and hierarchy, in general it worked like this. El was the father god and his wife was Asherah who was the mother of all the gods and of humanity. Therefore, the gods were born, so to speak, and their mother was Asherah. Baal, who was considered the most powerful god, was the god, also the god of storms and the god of fertility. Astarte, or Ashtoreth, which is entirely different now than the goddess Asherah, was closely associated with Baal. Astarte, from whom we get the name and many of the modern-day rites associated with the Christian holy day of Easter, was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of love and war as well, and she was Baal's consort. Now, I could go on with some of these other gods, but these four names of Ael, Ashtoreth, Baal, and Astarte, or Ashtoreth, uh, rather, Asherah, Baal, and Ashtoreth are, are all prominently mentioned in the Bible. And most of the lesser gods and goddesses of the pantheon are not mentioned. Now, my point is this. We need to grasp, no matter how distasteful it might be for us, that indeed, when the term El is used in the Bible, it is with the picture of the Canaanite god El that was in mind at least in the minds of those who lived in that day and perhaps to a lesser degree the writer or editor of the actual Holy Scripture. And this makes all kinds of sense when we realize that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were most associated with Mesopotamia beyond the Euphrates much more than they were with the lands to the south. Mesopotamia was the mother load of the mystery Babylon God system that was the basis of the Canaanite God system. For all practical purposes, they were one and the same, using largely the same God and goddesses' names with only minor variances in, in, in language, accounting for the somewhat different names that we'll find among them among the ancient cultures. Now, when we recount the story of Abraham coming into the land of Canaan, and stopping at Shechem to both build a simple altar, obviously upon which to sacrifice, and to hear God's promise to him, we remember that God was intent 
that Abram, Abraham had to leave the land, the land of his own ancestors, Mesopotamia, to go to a new place that God would show him. Now, part of the reason that this was necessary was that Abraham was raised up in that pantheon of El, Asherah, Baal, and Astarte. His father, Terah, carved and sold images of those gods and goddesses, presumably as a means of making a living. Few Christian or Jewish scholars would argue any longer that while Abraham may have done little more than tolerate his father's his families and his culture's dedication to these gods, they were certainly the only gods he knew. So by all accounts, Abraham counted as what we would today call a pagan. So the first step that God took to depaganize Abraham was to move him from his land, to get him away from it. To get him away from the God system that was embedded there. Now you say, but that same system was also in play in Canaan, where he went. Yeah, but Abraham probably knew very little about it and didn't know what to expect. Here's what Abraham and every other human alive in the Middle East in that era knew about gods. They were territorial, and there were a lot of them. This was not something that one questioned. It was common knowledge that certain gods occupied and ruled over specific territories and thus nations. This is not a thing that the Lord God could ever have simply explained to Abraham that would have changed his perspective. It would have done no good to set Abraham down and God say to him, Abraham, here's the deal. Forget everything you know and everything you see and that everybody else is doing, there's only one God and it's me and I'm not even that God that all these folks have been worshipping so just get over it. It wouldn't have worked. That would not have computed for Abraham. See, it's not about believing. It's about comprehending. Abraham believed God and it counted to him as righteousness. But he comprehended God in the context of his life and of the world as it currently existed, the one he knew. The concept of one God would have been beyond crazy to Abraham. One God for the whole world? Right. Now, modern evangelical teaching speaks often about the concept of progressive revelation. And it's got a lot of different connotations to it, some that get a little wild, but that's not what I'm talking about. It is essentially a notion that God is taking man on a journey and that it has a very definite path with explicit milestones at which point when these milestones are reached, sometimes new information is given or it's allowed for men to understand where they had not been able to before. There is no skipping of milestones. There is no fast forwarding. 
man must go through a progression of gaining knowledge in a certain way, in a certain order, at a certain speed. So that man can comprehend what it is that God's doing and just who he is. Progressive revelation doesn't reflect God's nature. It's because the nature of man requires it. It would take centuries of baby steps for Abraham and then his descendants to finally get to a point to where the concept of there being one God in all existence who was not at all a part of this universally accepted God system men had created before they could internalize it all finally. Thus, as we've seen in numerous cases in our studies, and we'll see in numerous more, God uses what's already in existence for his purposes. He'll use existing customs and traditions born by existing cultures and societies, and he'll give them a whole new meaning. He did exactly that when he introduced himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai. He allowed these earliest generations of Hebrews to go ahead and retain a sort of mental picture of him in the same light as the well-understood El of the Canaanites. Plus, it made sense to the patriarchs that since they were in Canaan, it's obvious that the highest God, El, the Canaanites had always claimed existed there, was still there. And so when God introduced himself as El Shaddai, El of the mountain, it was very easily grasped. But over hundreds of years, things progressed until the Lord made a very bold move. And he told Moses for the first time his real name. And his name was not El. It was Yehovah. This was the beginning of a whole new dynamic. Since Israel had long been out of Canaan anyway, living down in Egypt, now follow me here, it made sense to their minds that the El they knew from their days up in Canaan, he couldn't have been in Egypt. Right? The Egyptian gods were in Egypt, not El. When Israel left Egypt, they really had little problem with the experience of encountering a new god at Mount Sinai. Because Mount Sinai wasn't in Canaan or Egypt. And this new god had a name they'd never heard of before. After all, they were in an entirely different territory than they'd ever been before. So when the Lord God told them his name, Yehovah, it was to the Hebrews' way of thinking that they had only found out the name of the God who was the supreme ruler over the territory they had journeyed to after they left Egypt. The only real problem they had was grasping that this God of Mount Sinai was the same as the one who had worked such powerful miracles down in Egypt. 
I mean, that broke all the known rules concerning how gods did or even could operate. Thus we find the Lord over and over in his Torah saying, Hey guys, I'm the God who led you out of Egypt. He was emphasizing that even though it went against everything they thought they knew about gods, in fact, he operated without territorial boundaries or limitations or restrictions. Well, back to Joshua now at Shechem. Abraham knew God as El. Isaac knew God as El. Jacob knew God as El. But Joshua and Moses before him knew God as Yehovah. The generation who left Egypt, and especially the ones who survived that wilderness journey, knew God as Yehovah. No longer was there any tie of God's identification to that old Canaanite God system with El as the father and chief God. In fact, the warnings from Jehovah against Israel involving themselves in any way with these mystery Babylon gods increased, whereas before, such an association was kind of tolerated to a degree. And there were threats. He made threats if they ignored his demands. The, the, The new Hebrew residents hadn't moved into a Canaan where the Canaanite god El ruled. These new residents moved into a land ruled by Jehovah and he despised those Canaanite gods. Progressive revelation. The people of Israel were that generation that had reached the next milestone along this extended journey of God's plan of salvation. And so now they could better understand just who God was. And just as important who he was not. He was without doubt not a Canaanite or Babylon mystery religion God. And we have to always keep in mind the biblical definition of the word name. That simple word, name, which is shem, or shem as we typically say in Hebrew. As opposed to what it means to us commonly today. Today the word name simply means a simplistic way of identifying a person as apart from somebody else. But a person or particularly a God's name in the biblical era referred specifically to that God's or person's character, to his attributes, to his characteristics, his reputation. So when God no longer identified himself as El, he was also distancing himself from the characteristics of that Canaanite God system and the attributes of the El of the mystery Babylon religions. One of the themes we'll see in chapter 24 is that God divides Israel's history into four major pieces. First, the era of the patriarchs, when God was known to them as El. Just, we just looked at that. Second, when 
Israel went down to Egypt and they served Egypt's gods because obviously their god El was back up in Canaan where they came from. We're going to study that shortly. Third, the conquering of the Transjordan, that territory that was on the eastern side of the Jordan River when they knew God as Jehovah. And fourth is the crossing over of the Jordan into the actual promised land. Each one of these periods will present us with its own set of theological principles due once again to the very nature of progressive revelation. Now beginning in verse 4. When Israel was in Egypt, most Hebrews did not believe that their God was with them. That's one of the reasons they lost hope. How could he possibly be with them when he rules over Canaan? Thus, they had no God to help them when they were in Egypt. Yet it was understood that when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You're in Egypt, worship the Egyptian gods. They may not do a lot for you, but at the same time, you don't want to arouse their anger against you. One of the reasons that Jacob hoped so fervently then he and his sons and their families could get back to Canaan was so they could get back to their God, El Shaddai, who was back up in Canaan. Genesis 48.1 A while later, someone told Joseph that his father was ill. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, here comes your son, Joseph. And Israel gathered his strength and he sat up in bed and Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, saying to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a group of peoples. I will give this land to your descendants to possess forever. Down in Egypt, the God of the patriarchs was still known as El Shaddai. Jacob was still calling him El Shaddai, the God who lived in Canaan. And as we see in this conversation between Jacob and his son Joseph, that's all they knew him as. Perhaps this is all starting to take hold in you. Okay? If so, then you can understand that the Hebrews envisioned their God, El Shaddai, as unable to help them in Egypt because his power ended at the borders of Canaan. But now listen to Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush before he returned to Egypt to fetch God's people. Moses in Exodus 3.11 says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he replied, I will surely be with you. Your sign that I have sent you will be that when you've led the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, look, when I appear before the people of Israel and they say, and I say to them, well, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, okay, what's his name? What am I to tell them? And God said to Moses, Aye, Asher, Aye, I am what I am, I will be what I will be. And added, 
Here is what you're to say to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said further to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am now to be remembered generation after generation. Go gather the leaders of Israel together and say to them, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have been paying close attention to you and have seen what's being done to you down in Egypt. And I have said that I will lead you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, Hitti, Amorite, Prezi, Hivi, Yavusi, to a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, the name of your God meant everything. It meant where he or she fit in the pecking order of gods. It meant where they had power. It meant how much power they had. It meant what sorts of things in nature they had the power to affect. The God's name explained the God's attributes. It was not unusual that a God was aware of what was going on outside, or his, outside of his or her own territory so that part of God's message to the Israelites through Moses was that God knew of their plight. So that wouldn't have been difficult for them to accept. What is so useful for us to see is that so that Israel would have a different view of just who this God of Moses is, God instructed Moses to go to the Hebrews with a different name, a different reputation, a different set of attributes than the patriarchs had known of him. Because obviously the enslaved people of Israel only knew the characteristics, the name of their God as taught to them by the patriarchs. If Moses had come to them and said, well, this God's name that sent me is El Shaddai, the people would have laughed at him. Why? El Shaddai had no power in Egypt. Everybody knew that. See, things were about to change. A new milestone along the journey had been reached. It was time for more information to be added because the people were ready for it. They'd been prepared for it. The new information began with a new name. Yehovah. This is progressive revelation. Okay, we'll continue with this thought next week.